from Small Data Industries, this is Art and Obsolescence. I'm your host, Ben Fina-Radden, and on this show, I chat with people that are shaping the past, present, and future of art and technology. Welcome back, friends. I hope you are hanging in there in spite of all of the terrible things happening in the world right now. And I hope this show can serve as a little reprieve and escape from the news cycle for you, even if just for a little while. Now, on the very first episode of the show, back in September, we kicked things off with Pip Lawrenson, an art conservator who was among the first pioneering generation of time-based media art conservators before that term even really existed. As we heard in that conversation, Pip really established and laid the foundation for the development of what would become the Tate's flourishing department dedicated to the acquisition and care of time-based media art. Well, today we are back at the Tate. Hello, my name is Patricia Falcão, and I'm a time-based media conservator and a doctoral researcher into time-based media conservation. In our chat, Patricia shows us what truly contemporary time-based media conservation practices look like. She's been doing incredible work on what it looks like for museums to document and care for software-based works of art. We'll also get to hear about her PhD thesis on how artists engage in the care of their own work outside the walls of the institution. So if that sounds good to you, stay tuned. And hey, if you have been enjoying the show, and I hope you have, you know, it would be super awesome if you could share the show with a friend. We post little easily shareable clips of the show on Twitter and Instagram at Art Obsolescence throughout the week. So you can reshare those if that's your thing. And as a reminder, you can find the full show notes and transcripts at Art and obsolescence.com. Now, without further delay, let's dive into this week's chat with Patricia Falcao. I grew up in Lisbon. I'm Portuguese and I grew up in this typical Mediterranean middle-class family of, you know, lots of uncles and cousins and all that sort of thing. My father was a doctor. My mother uh, studied pharmacy. It was never directly that I had this um, artistic influence, but it was somewhere there. And it only came to a head when You know, I had to decide what I wanted to do in high school in my last three years. And basically what I didn't want to do is maths. The way to escape maths was to do a professional degree in woodworking and furniture making in this very posh professional school that was really traditional. The three subjects were wood carving and you would learn to do Louis XVI, Rococo, all sorts of furniture. But it was really classical Furniture, the foundation that managed the school is famous for doing replicas of the furniture in the royal palaces in Portugal. So it was that sort of environment. And it was pretty luxurious. At that point, we still had access to all sorts of, of woods that you probably can find now, you know, like ebony and rosewood that are super rare and you can't even uh, sell them and buy them anymore. It was quite an experience. We also did very intricate marquetry and just proper structural building of wood furniture. So those were the three key subjects and then a lot of drawing as well actually at the end of the degree i could make classical furniture in a classical way to a very bad level because i was a terrible furniture maker but it gave me the experience of the materials uh, but i was 16 when i finished and it was way too early to start working in a workshop i couldn't really picture myself and the option to continue studying made sense because it was also an introduction in the course was conservation as part of the degree, we had two subjects on conservation. It opened my appetite and I thought, okay, that could be interesting. It brought me more of the science aspect that I missed because the professional degree, we spent uh, 
good 18 hours a week in the workshops, just working with our hands. We spent so much time in that workshop and I missed the science a bit because I, I enjoyed mm. that. And I was 16 when I finished. And so the next step that made sense was to do a conservation degree. And so I went into conservation school in Lisbon, which again was quite an amazing arrangement back then because it was a collaboration between education ministry, but also the culture ministry. So we were working with the National Institute for Conservation in Portugal. So again, working with extremely experienced people who were really generous of their time and we worked in their workshops as well. What attracted me to conservation was the scientific side of things and uh, this more academic, I, I guess, might be the word to use in that I missed it. I grew up surrounded by science and conservation is this wonderful mix of science and manual work and art if you choose to go in that direction. So it is a mix of interests that come together. I don't think I even thought that much about it. It was just like, oh, that's the obvious decision when I came out of vocational school. We did all the basics in conservation. You had conservation theory and the chemistry and some of the math that I'd been trying to run away from. <laughs> it was a, a really good conservation degree, I think, even now, that had all of those strands that interested me. But then I came to the end of the course. There was a moment where I was like, oh, maybe this is completely wrong for me. Or oh, maybe I should be a, you know, someone who designs gardens. I did all these tests about what I should do. And I came out and the person who did the test was like, you know, from the results, you, you could be a landscape architect, but you know, conservation is perfect for you. <laughs> so it turned out to be like, no, actually, maybe you should keep going at it. <laughs> I started talking to a colleague of mine who was doing photography. And she was like, oh, yeah, but if you don't want to do furniture, then try photography. The teacher is great. This was Luis Pavão, who was uh, the introducer of photography conservation in Portugal back in the 90s. I followed my colleague's suggestion and decided to try that. And it's just like, oh, this is also really interesting. And actually, I'm probably much better at it than I am with furniture conservation. That turned into an internship at the Municipal Photo Archives in Lisbon, which at the time was one of the leading institutions in photo conservation, and as a photo archive, actually, in Portugal. They were very glad to have interns. They were very welcoming. And so I was with them for nine months, and I wrote my bachelor thesis on the work I did there. And it was really good because also Luis Pavão was writing a handbook in Portuguese about photography conservation. And so I became aware of what he was doing and he was really encouraging. And I think that opened my eyes also to the international practice in conservation because he was connected to all these people in the US and, and in Europe. So very quickly we became aware of how important these networks were. After that internship, I was really lucky because I was 21. And exactly when I was finishing my degree, this Portuguese Center for Photography opened. The aim of the center was to support Portuguese photography, divulge international photography in Portugal and Portuguese artists abroad. You know, it was a really good combination of historical photography and contemporary photography. They needed conservators. And of course, there were no trained conservators in photography then, at least not in Portugal. And when I came out, they were like, oh yeah, come and start as soon as you can. And because it was a very new institution, the boundaries were very fluid. I'd be helping in an exhibition one day and then cleaning glass plate negatives the other day, help out in workshops, you know, in a small town outside Porto for the day. And 
Our director, she was super well networked. She was re really generous and really enjoyed working with the team. And we were a very young team in general. They had to hire some people. There were no people with experience. I think the oldest person there was 31 when we started. Besides the director and the vice director, of course, they were uh, grown-ups, but everybody else was uh, just having a great time. We worked a lot, but we also had a lot of fun and we learned immensely. I think after four or five years, the, the work at the center became less of a novelty and we were spending a lot of time just cleaning less plate negatives. And so I was getting a little bit bored and I was really interested in contemporary photography. Completely randomly, I went to visit a friend in Germany, in Frankfurt. I learned German as a teenager and so I thought, okay, maybe I could try and, and get an internship in Germany. It should be easier to get funding because there's not as many people wanting to go there because of the language. I got to Frankfurt and I called the museum to see if the curator I'd been speaking with would talk to me, as one does when is 23 and clueless about museums. <laughs> I don't think I would do that nowadays, actually. Um, the secretary was very nice and she was like, oh, you know, Kramer is not in, but you could try and talk to Ulrich Lang, who was the conservator. And Ulrich took my call. And then he was like, come and have a chat. <laughs> and I came in the, that afternoon to have a chat with Ulrich and said, well, you know, I'm interested in, in the conservation of contemporary photography. I could probably get the funding from the Portuguese institution to come and do an internship for a year. Would you want me? And Ulrich walked me through the Museum of Modern Art and pointed at a Jeff Wall light box these objects that hang on the wall, but in, in fact are quite voluminous. My recollection is that it was maybe two by three meters, and then they're like 40 centimeters deep because they have lights behind them, and then a transparent layer with the photography, the photograph that you see. I think what impressed Ulrich is that I actually described it as an object rather than as a photograph. And so after that, it was like, oh, okay, let's make a proposal and you can come. And so that's what we did. We designed a one-year internship with around contemporary photography. And then I was very lucky and got funded to do that. Of course, the problem was that I was interested in deterioration, but the collection at MMK was... Uh, brand new. So they had very little for me to do <laughs> around that. So was that the place where, because it was a modern art collection, you were exposed to more time-based media? I would say I was forced into video. <laughs> the photo collection didn't need any special attention, but they did have a video collection and the curator for that had left. And so Ulrich asked me, oh, can you catalog the whole list of tapes because there were tapes that were artworks, there were tapes that were not artworks. The person that had had that overview had left. So in the end, I ended up spending maybe half of my internship just doing that without actually seeing much of the images. It wasn't even assessing the image itself. It was just the physical condition of the tapes and their status in the collection. And at first I was like, no, I don't want to work with video. There's no image there. <laughs> I don't even know how this works. Then I got interested and it was really lucky the moment I got there because Ulrich had started a discussion group around contemporary art and time-based media. I think he had started at the museum only a couple of years before I showed up, and he felt that need. And so part of that discussion group were people like Agatha Jarczyk, Christiane Froener, Reinhard Beck would come around. So, you, you know, you had these regular meetings around different subjects. 
it just opened my eyes to this whole profession. And that's where I built many of the relationships that, that I still have. That same year, there was a conference in Dortmund, 404 Object Not Found, which is one of those seminal conferences on the preservation of not time-based media, more software, really, I think. And Pip Lorenzen was there. I was standing in the room and I overheard a conversation between Pip and someone else about measuring color. And that's exactly what I'd been doing for the internship. I was looking at color calibration and I just had had this conversation with a professor on color. So I had all this fresh knowledge that I completely randomly had acquired and just rattled that out to Pip, who somehow was impressed, I think. And so we started talking and I think that was the moment where I thought, oh, this could be interesting. You know, and she was just so enthusiastic that I thought, oh, okay, maybe there is a chance that I could work in this field and work with Pip. After that, I, I, the internship was over, I went back to Lisbon and I just wanted to leave again. <laughs> so I applied for a role at, at ZKM in a project called 40 Years of Video Art that was led by Rudolf Freeling. So I ended up at ZKM and worked in this project. And there I really learned about video and videotapes and deterioration and the history of video art as well, of course. After that, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do next, but I was talking to Johannes Gfeller, who was at the time the teacher for time-based media uh, in Bern, and to Agata Jarczyk. And I kind of was like, well, it would be really good to do a master's because I only had a bachelor's and Bern looks great. And so at one point I was really thinking about this and I was chatting to Agata and she was asking me, so what are you doing next? And I said, well, I'm thinking about Bern, but I, I'm not sure. And all of a sudden I had this email saying, how much do you want to work and how much do you want to be paid? <laughs> so in the end, she hired me for her company at the time. And I came to Bern to do the master's with Johannes Kveller. And then towards the end of the master's, I had to decide what I wanted to do for a thesis. And at the same time, the Tate advertised for a paid internship and I applied. So when I did the interview and I explained the situation, Pip Lawrence and she was like, oh no, that would be fine. You can come and do the thesis as you work and choose a subject. At that point, I'd had a little bit of programming in chemistry when I finished conservation. <laughs> that was the only time where I'd learned any programming. So we had one class about Fortran 90 which I'd, I passed with a 10 out of 20. So it wasn't really my strong suit either. <laughs> but then when we were thinking about subjects for a master thesis, it was like, well, you can look at HD video or software. And I was like, well, HD video, is, it's just video, <laughs> really. This was 2008. So it, it was a big deal all of a sudden that you were having all this digital high resolution video. But I was like, okay, now let's look at software. It's more interesting to me. And I spent a little bit over two years just uh, doing that and looking at the risk assessment of software-based artworks. What were some of the pieces in the Tate's collection that you were looking at during that process? Mm -hmm. So there's Rafael Lozano Hammer's subtitle Public. And I really lived with it for a long time because we were showing it in Liverpool. So I was there installing with Raphael's team. And that, you know, showed me a lot of the practicalities of installing it and, and how the software work and the quirks of calibrating it and so on. And the other piece was Brutalismo by Jose Carlos Martinat, who's a South American artist who's not so much of a software-based artist, I wouldn't say. But he worked with a really nice programmer for this series of works that 
that involved pulling information out of the internet and printing it out for the public. And his programmer was very kind and generous. So he took a lot of time just looking at the code with me and, and explaining what he was doing and telling me what the risks were, because of course he already knew what was going to fail in the next year and in the next six years. But it's interesting because the conservation issues of these two pieces repeat themselves in so many other works that popped up again. So they were really good case studies. My current job at Tate is related mostly with acquisitions, and that's a little bit how our team is organized, where we have conservators that have more of a focus on acquisitions and some have more of a focus on displays. And also we have what we call collection care projects, which are things that they are to do with infrastructure and digital preservation more. I've worked mostly in acquisitions, and so I still see that as this core moment where an artwork comes into the collection and where there's this handover of information responsibility from the artist to the institution. For me, that is really this one moment where, you know, you really need to learn about a piece. And that's basically what I do along with my colleagues. We get involved in the conversations between curators and artists or gallery and try and understand what we are going to receive. And this is sometimes, are we getting an executable file as a download or are we going to get the computer with everything installed? Or, you know, what is this work that we are acquiring physically? And that usually is, is an iterative process. So we'll be told something very high level and then we start to uh, dig down onto the detail. For instance, for a work like Brutalismo, we were first told you'll receive a computer and then we had the computer and we started looking, oh, okay, this is the operating system that it's running on. And I can see that there's an application running here. And then we started talking to the programmer and he started explaining what the software was doing. We start digging in and there's always this little discrepancy between how someone describes what an artwork is doing and how it is doing it and what it is actually happening on a technical level. And that's especially the case when you have the artist who developed the concept and then you have the programmer who actually developed the code. So that's always an interesting conversation to have. Since I started, of course, this has developed immensely, specifically with the work of Tom Hansen more recently on how we analyze these works. But literally, when I started, it was just basically learning from the artists and the programmers. I think that has changed a lot also with the work, uh, both with the work of Tom Hansen and also Joanna Phillips and, and Dina Engel, so that there is a framework on how these works can be analyzed. The conversations with the artists and programmers are still invaluable, of course, but there is also a degree of expertise in-house that is growing and that has changed a lot over the last few years, I think. The biggest change over the years is that we went from acquiring one artwork every two to three years and now we are acquiring like two, three works a year that have an important software element. And, you know, that just raises immediately the question of scaling. And I think we are more and more aware of that. When I wrote my thesis, the collection had eight works and we had two works that were very similar by Michael Craig Martin. So there's also very limited experience, right? You don't have enough experience to look at something and go, oh, this, this is similar to that. And I think now we have that experience from the work we've done ourselves, but also from work that is shared by other institutions and, and practitioners. 
Tom Hansen, Chris King, and I just published some of the outcomes of a project that has been going on that date since 2018, I think, that is aiming at sort of creating these workflows on how to address the work that is being acquired. What are the main steps that we know we need to take or that we will usually want to take for most artworks. That is based on a lot of work that Tom has done in the last few years. And just by systematizing the way we think about these works, what are they? What are the, the risks? With the Tate collection, what's happening or what has happened so far is we've mostly acquired works that were fairly recent. So we don't have anything prior to 2003 so far. So we are working within things like uh, Windows XP or operating systems that at least someone in my generation is very familiar with. <laughs> And so that doesn't raise all of the problems that someone working with an artwork from the 90s, for instance, would face in terms of hardware dependencies, for instance. But we do know that operating systems become obsolete, hardware fails, and we know the difference between the value of certain pieces of hardware versus others. And so that's the first step, I think, is just look exactly at what we are receiving and understanding the, the importance of these different elements and just thinking about, okay, what can we do now that means that this will be safe for the next 10 years or 15 years, or I don't want to go much further <laughs> than that, but. So we've talked a lot about the past, and thank you for that. What are you working on these days? So at Tate, I'm still doing acquisitions of new artworks. A lot of my time at the moment is dealing with digital preservation and our storage system and making it as user-friendly as possible. I'm working on this with my colleagues, Duncan Harvey and Jack McConchie, and with our technology team to just make it as easy as possible to ingest artworks, digital assets of artworks. That's been on the background for a long time, and now it's, again, going at full speed. I think it is the core aspect, really, in the care of any time-based media collection, is this very basic aspect of keeping your bytes safe. And not driving people insane with amounts of metadata to be handled. So that's a big aspect of this work. The more exciting work that I'm doing at the moment is to do with my PhD, where I'm, I'm working on a specific case study of a piece by Ben Grosser, who's a, a, an American artist that works around social media and critique of social media, so very timely. And more specifically, a work called Go Rando. That is a, a Chrome extension that sort of randomizes your emotions on Facebook. And again, that just shows my recklessness because I don't use Facebook. <laughs> So I'm having to steal my nephew's account so that I can experience the work. It's fascinating because, you know, the work is not collected. So for me, this perspective is really different from what I'm used to at the date. For us, it's like it's being collected. We'll have the resource to take care of this. And of course, working with an artist that doesn't have necessarily that resource. And then in a medium that the work has to evolve with Facebook to keep on working. It's a completely different perspective and it's really amazing to learn Ben Grosser's work processes, how he comes to his new solutions and this detective work that he does around the code and how to mess with it on the Facebook page. So it's really exciting. It's really interesting. This case study is part of a wider attempt to understand what drives an artist to actually want to preserve their work, 
has, does that change over generations? Are younger artists that are coming out of, of the university, some of my colleagues at Goldsmiths that are studying computer art, what are they learning? Is there any discussion of sustainability at that level? Not that we want to tell people how to do their work. <laughs> we know that doesn't work very well with artists, but at least so that people are aware, okay, if you're making that choice, then at least you know what you're choosing. That is the other end of the conversation, I think, from that research. That's fantastic. That's super important research. How do you think that you've seen the time-based media conservation field change over the years? There's more of us, I think. And people are much more confident with the medium, right? You are being taught a lot more. When I did my conservation degree, photography was the peak of modernity, <laughs> so to speak. And that's not the case anymore. You have degrees, you have people with experience, training, students. So I think someone coming out of a conservation degree will have a lot more knowledge to start with than, than what I had when I finished my bachelor's. I'm really inspired by the work happening, maybe not so much in conservation, but in AV preservation of people building their own tools, like the work that Dave Rice has been doing where it's like, oh, okay, there's no solution for this, so I'll just find my own, which I haven't seen so much in software yet, but I think that's probably where it's going to head. I think this is sort of the hopeful developments in the field. Yeah. And is there any advice that you have for somebody who's interested in getting into this field? Just ask. Even though I, I can be quite shy, I was sort of like, oh, okay, I'll just try and... I'll just ask, you know, I'll call the museum up and see if this person has time for me. You shouldn't let your lack of experience and knowledge just stop you from wondering and, and asking. I just decided to write a, a master thesis on software-based art preservation with very little knowledge of software. And it turned out okay, because you just learn. As long as you're happy to do that, then it's fine. It's literally just finding the people that can help you and ask. Because my experience in the conservation field is that you will get replies from people that you think, oh, they're super busy, they're not going to say anything. They're not going to answer my emails. And you get those answers. Well, Patricia, thank you so much for your time today. It was such a pleasure getting to sit down and chat and like really get to know your story. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for the questions. It was nice. And as always, thank you, dear listener, for joining us for this week's conversation. Hey, if you enjoyed this week's show, share it with a friend. You can find the show notes and full transcript at artandobsolescence.com. And you can find clips and highlights on Twitter and Instagram at artobsolescence. Have a great week, my friends. My name is Ben Fina Radden, and this has been Art and Obsolescence.